Well, we have come to our penultimate message in the Mark's Gospel series. Next week, we'll be looking at Mark 16, our final message after over 50 sermons and over a year of preaching through the book of Mark. But today we're going to be finishing off chapter 15, coming towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 33. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, get them open up at Mark 15, and we'll be starting from verse 33. Last week we were looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. We learned how Jesus had been on trial before Pilate, and then he had been sentenced to punishment and then crucifixion. And as we walked through that crucifixion narrative last week, we saw how Jesus was beaten, mocked, humiliated, questioned, rebuked, and even challenged. And as we looked at these horrifying details, we learned that Jesus endured it, fulfilling God's salvation plan by showing the love of a saviour. Today, we're going to pick up that narrative with Jesus still upon the cross, but now nearing his death. But before we delve into the verses, last week several individuals wonderfully committed their lives to Jesus. I pray that once again this week, as we are faced with Jesus upon the cross, that many listening and watching will know the overwhelming reality of this fact, that Jesus died so that you might live. Each element of these verses today speaks of the opportunity that you and I are invited into, that we can draw close to Jesus, and in doing so, we can be in right relationship with the Creator God. And for those who are already Christians, this passage serves as a reminder to live our lives worthy of the gospel that Jesus endured this cross so that you might live. And so ultimately, whether you are not a believer or you are a believer, these are overwhelming verses for us today. And so we'll walk through them slowly and then apply some lessons to our lives. So we're going to begin our study, Mark 15, and we're going to continue from verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark tells us that while Jesus hung on the cross at the sixth hour, which is about 12 p.m., all the way through to the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., the earth was in darkness. We'll come on to the darkness in a moment because clearly that is quite significant. But for now, notice one crucial element. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for hours. This was the brutal nature of crucifixion. It was not a quick death. It was a slow death involving excruciating pain. Jesus hung as a public spectacle. This was the ultimate humiliation. This was the gruesome pain that Pilate, the religious leaders and the people could inflict on Jesus. He hung there for hours in pain. But the crucifixion of Jesus was like no other. While nailed on the cross, the land was covered in darkness. In Luke 23, 45, we are told the sun's light failed. Can you just imagine that? In the height of the afternoon, in the brightest hours of the day, the sun failed and the land was no longer lit, but was in darkness. Now, there's some speculation as to what happened in this moment, with the most prolific being a total solar eclipse. The reality is, though, the passage doesn't tell us what happened, but we do know who caused it. We have an immense show of God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. He can make the land dark because nothing is too great for him to do. This was God showing his power at this moment. You see, we already know that God had ordained this darkness. It is a direct fulfillment of two Old Testament passages, the first being Joel chapter 2 in the first two verses. 
Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Then the second passage is Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This was the moment of that darkness while Jesus was nailed to the cross and it was all by God's command. Darkness hit the land. Just like when Moses brought the plague of darkness to Egypt, so now the land was dark, showing the wrath of God and the curse on the people for seeking to kill the light of the world. This wasn't just darkness for the sake of it. God was showing the other side of his character. His love was shown in Christ Jesus on the cross. His wrath was being shown in this darkness that covered the land. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After three hours of darkness, Jesus shouted, crying out a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Why such a cry? Has God left Jesus? Has Jesus been entirely forgotten in this awful moment? Well, it's important in answering these questions that we understand what is happening on the cross, specifically what is happening during this period of darkness. Now we're told in Hebrews 9.28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Jesus was not just any man on a cross, he was a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us why. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin, yet remained without sin. Instead of God's wrath being placed on each one of us, Jesus takes our sin and therefore takes the wrath of God and nails it to the cross. The ultimate purpose of this was to pave way to a right relationship with God through the righteousness that Jesus brings the believer. In essence, Jesus was offering a swap, our sin for his righteousness. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus had become the curse of sin. He was made like sin. He suffered the wrath of God and he did so in replacement of each one of us. And the technical term for this is penal substitution. The punishment that we deserved was placed on Jesus. Therefore, the cross shows both the justice of God and the forgiveness of God. In this moment, Jesus was voluntarily enduring the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, accepting the entire wrath of God for all mankind, and therefore Jesus Christ suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritual pain while on the cross. Therefore, he cries out to the Heavenly Father, not because God has forgotten him, but because he is enduring all of these things. He is enduring the wrath of God. He is enduring the removal of his fellowship. He is enduring it all in this awful, excruciating pain for each one of us. This is penal substitution. This is Jesus taking our place when we deserved it. 
verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The people were paying little attention to the words of Jesus. They mistook the word Eloi for a cry for Elijah to come to his aid. John 19.28 tells us, After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The scripture that Jesus was fulfilling was Psalm 69.21. It was likely that Jesus needed to moisten his lips before this great cry in verse 37. But what is interesting is not necessarily what was happening in terms of Jesus' lips and moistening them, but rather what the people were doing and how they reacted to this. They put a sponge of sour wine or or vinegar wine to his lips. Their particular interest wasn't quenching the thirst of Jesus. Rather, as it says in verse 36, they wanted to see if Elijah would come to the salvation of Jesus. They're not moved by what they saw. Rather, they were curious Their thoughts were on what would happen next, not on the pain and suffering that Jesus was enduring. I wonder, is this the final mockery of Jesus? That the people actually cared very little about him and what was happening in his slow and cruel death and more just curious about what would happen if Elijah turned up. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said, but he makes it clear This was a loud cry. This was the final words of Jesus before his death. John 19.30 actually gives us a little bit more detail. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The cry that rang out from the top of Calvary, across the land, across the people, across the religious leaders, so that all could hear, was, It is finished. He had endured extreme levels of pain, and now at this moment, Jesus died. Mark notes that he breathed his last, but John states that Jesus gave up his spirit. It was Augustine who noted he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and how he willed it. In other words, it was at this moment that Jesus gave his life for the sake of mankind. The work of Christ, his sacrifice, the eternal punishment for sin was now finished. There was nothing more to endure. And so Jesus gave his life and breathed his last. I want you to see this. No one took the life of Jesus. Jesus gave his life. This was a willing sacrifice. This was volunteering for the position. This was Jesus not being overcome by death, but giving his life unto death. This was the gift of God that Jesus was given for our sake. Verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There is monumental significance in these verses. You see, the temple was central to the Jewish people. It was the place that sacrifices were given and worship was lifted up to the Most High God. The temple was made of multiple courts, rooms and holy places with holy items. However, the Holy of Holies was separated separated from the rest of the temple by a veil, by a large curtain. It's been said that it was 60 foot tall and some historians place it and nearly four inches thick. 
and it represented the separation that man now suffered from God due to sin. As it said in Isaiah 59:2, our iniquities have been made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because of our sin, we were separated from God and this curtain represented that. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and he would do so once a year to offer an atonement sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice for our sin because there was that recognition that we could not draw close to God for sin had separated us. When Jesus died, this veil or, or curtain was torn into from top to bottom. You see, the divide was ripped apart. And now through Jesus, there was no separation between God and mankind. In fact, the focus would move away from the Holy of Holies to Jesus himself. For God left the temple not to dwell there again. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You see, Jesus takes the place of the high priest and he also takes the place of the sacrifice. You see, he intercedes on our behalf before the heavenly father and he uses himself to atone for our sins. Therefore, it's through the death of Jesus we now enjoy the presence of God. As the writer of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 10, 19, 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Of course, we see all this looking back. But there was a centurion who stood in front of Jesus. He witnessed the darkness he witnessed the final cry of Jesus. He witnessed Jesus die. Rather than mock Jesus or refuse to be moved by what he saw, he declares the truth. This man was the son of God. He doesn't say Messiah, although Jesus was the Messiah, but really only the Jews refer to him in this way. As he saw this physical man of Jesus die, he recognized who Jesus was. He was the son of God. What we're reminded in this moment is as Jesus was working, as he was giving himself as a sacrifice, as he was becoming that high priest, as he was now our way into a right relationship with God, yet when everything around him seemed all lost, when it seemed like he was in fact losing the battle to be the Messiah, to be the Holy One, to be the King over the people, here was one man before Jesus witnessing it all declaring that Jesus was the Son of God. What we're reminded is that in all of our work in ministry, we can be concentrating on the big picture. We can be looking at all the, the ministries and the opportunities and pushing forward and developing the ministry of Christ in our local area, in our church, or even online. And we must never forget that simple opportunity of someone standing before us, hearing the truth. When you strip everything away, remember this. The gospel is Jesus. We don't need to put bells and whistles on it. It is Jesus Christ giving his life as the high priest and the sacrifice so that we could live. The centurion got it. He saw it for what it is, a simple message. Jesus died so that we might live. Verse 40. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark records that from a distance, when all this was happening, a group of women were watching on. He only mentions three by name, the two Marys and Salome, but there is certainly a hint to a bigger group, a wider group of women that are watching on. These women were followers of Jesus. Specifically, we're told that they ministered to him. And when we go all the way back to Luke chapter 8, we see that this is referring to the financial support of the ministry. And we read in Luke 8 too, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Jusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This group of women were supporting the ministry of Jesus. They supported it to his death and beyond. They were with him at his burial. They brought spices for his body. They were among the first to hear about his resurrection and they continued in prayer all the way until Pentecost. And then we read in the book of Acts that they willingly gave their homes to be places of worship. Yes, there were disciples fleeing Jesus and deserting him, but there were also followers who remained faithful at this given moment. Verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now bodies were often left on the hillside, on Calvary. They were left for the vultures and the wild dogs to eat. That is why some have suggested that the hill is called the place of a skull or the place of skull, for the bones were literally littered on top of this hillside. Burial of crucified individuals was extremely rare, but clearly Jesus was no ordinary man. The issue, however, was the culture of the time. The new day began and finished with sunset. And so with Jesus dying on the cross just a few hours before sunset, and with Passover being the next day, if anything was to be done with the body of Jesus, it would have to happen quickly within a couple of hours. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea steps in. Now, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He was highly respected. He was deemed as a good man. He was a wealthy man because of his position. And it's interesting to recognise that there's no mention of him speaking up at the trial of Jesus or defending Jesus. Instead, we see him stepping forward after Jesus had died. Now, we might be tempted to say that he was a coward because he didn't stand up in the moment. He didn't stand up to defend Jesus. Why didn't he just get up in the moment and stop the proceedings? However, I want you to see this. It took courage for a man of such position to associate himself with a dead man. Further to this, a man who had been crucified. Just like Esther was prepared for a particular time, so Joseph was prepared for a particular moment. He took courage and went to Pilate to petition for the body of Jesus. If any commoner had done this, Pilate would have just simply ignored it. But with such a prominent position, Joseph was able to get an audience with Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. We continue in our passage. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Pilate's amazed because it often took days for people to die on the cross. 
This is why we're told in John's Gospel that soldiers would break the legs of those being crucified to try and speed up the process. For Jesus to be already dead is highly unusual. Hence, Pilate wants to check, is Jesus actually dead? And I wonder what was going through Pilate's mind. Would he have been relieved that this ordeal was now all over? Or would he have been astonished that everything about this Jesus was somehow different? All we're told is that he granted the body of Jesus to Joseph. But notice the word corpse is used. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that Jesus is dead. This is crucial for next week's passage. Jesus is dead. There's no pretending here. There's no magic happening here. There's no sleight of hand. He has died on the cross. Proven by those who watched on, proven by the centurion, and all ordained by God. Verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. Although there was a rush to get the body of Jesus, there was no rush in the burial process. The body of Jesus was appropriately handled. He was wrapped in linen and laid gently in a tomb. And we're told in the other Gospels that the tomb was Joseph's. His courage was not only to go to Pilate, but to use his own tomb for Jesus. For the rest of Joseph's life, he would be associated with Jesus. There's great significance here though, for it was deemed that such a burial was only for highly important individuals like those of the Sanhedrin, and most commonly for kings. They would be buried in a fresh tomb, in a garden, and anointed with spices. You see, this was King Jesus crucified, King Jesus dead, and King Jesus buried. We're told that at a distance the women watched. They kept an eye on the proceedings, for after the Sabbath they would return with the spices to finish the burial process. But what I want you to see is this. From Pilate to Joseph to the woman watching, nobody was preparing for the resurrection. Everyone saw Jesus as dead and they prepared for his burial. No one looked on and remembered that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Nobody mentions it. Nobody thinks it. Nobody has the faith that it will happen. There is great love and devotion here given to Jesus, but there is a distinct lack of faith in the promises of Jesus. Nobody prepared that Jesus would rise from the dead. And it's here we finish in our passage today. And next week, we'll go to that wonderful final message in Mark 16. But we don't want to be rushing into Mark 16. We want to spend just a moment on how we take the death and burial of Jesus and apply it to our lives this week. And to make things simple, I have one specific application this week. One thing I want you to take from really chapter 15, one thing we can take from the crucifixion, the death and the burial of Jesus. And that is our position in Christ, our position in Christ. You see, pre-Christ, before his death on the cross, we were dead in our sins. We had no hope. Our relationship with God was severed because we couldn't draw close to him for he couldn't have sin in his presence. We were not right with God. Our sin needed dealt with and pre-Christ our sin had to be punished. And that punishment was eternal death or eternal separation from God. However, through Christ, through faith in the work he completed on the cross, everything changes. 
Consider Hebrews 4 and from verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, in being the high priest, in being the very sacrifice, took the punishment for our sin and the wrath of God for our sin and nailed it to the cross. Our position changes when we place our faith in that work. We go from unrighteous, dead in our sin with no hope, to being able to draw close to God, knowing that we'll receive mercy through forgiveness, and this will not be a work of our own, but through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the work is done. The price has been paid. Sin has been judged. The wrath of God has been spent. The question will now boil down to, how will you respond to such an act of love? Our response ultimately will determine our position in Christ. You see, if we reject this gift, if we, we, we throw it away and toss it back, if we reject the, the loving action of Jesus taking our place, then our position is not in Christ, but out of Christ. It is one of mockery. We scoff at the sacrifice and we throw it back. We remain dead in our sin. However, if we accept the gift, if we repent and turn from our sin, then we are no longer dead in our sin, but through the crucifixion of Jesus, the death and sacrifice of Jesus, through him our position is forgiven, redeemed, made new, child of God, co-heir to the throne and citizen of heaven. So the question is, who are you? Are you dead in your sin for you have rejected the gift of Jesus Christ? Or is your position new in Christ? Are you now alive through the work of the cross of Jesus Christ? The crucifixion and death of Jesus demands a response. Just as the centurion, Pilate, Joseph, the women, the people, the religious leaders and the disciples responded, so now you are given a chance to respond. What will you do with the offer of Christ as sacrifice for your sins? I pray that you will accept it for what it is, the most precious eternal gift. And I pray that when you do accept that gift, that you might be transformed and find a new life, a new position in Christ. One that you are forgiven, redeemed, made new, child of God, co-heir to the throne and citizen of heaven. Now, before I pray, just a simple word to believers and followers of Jesus already. Let us not make a mockery of such a gift, such a sacrifice by continuing to live in sin. Let us not make excuses. Let us not live in the habit of sin. Let us not live a life as we think best. Let us be wholly and totally surrendered to Jesus. Let us take this gift of new life and live our lives in such a way that is worthy of the gospel. Friends, God's salvation is to bring forgiveness through the cross of Christ. He offers you new life. Will you take it? Will you live that new life? Will you cherish that new life? 
These are questions that demand a response. And I pray that you will draw close to Jesus and your position in life will change to be one in Christ, redeemed, renewed, forgiven, child of God, co-heir to the throne and citizen of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are sorrowful that our sin took your son Jesus to the cross. We're sorrowful when we see the pain and anguish that he suffered, the mocking, the rebuking, the challenging. But Father, we rejoice for we see in Jesus our great high priest, the great sacrifice, the great act of love. For we know that in Jesus' death on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. We're no longer separated from our creator God and our heavenly father. Through Jesus Christ and the work on the cross, we might be made new. We might have new life in Jesus. And Father, I pray that many would come to know this wonderful message that Jesus died so that we might live. And Father, we pray that when we do live through Jesus, when we commit our lives to him, that we would live in such a way that is worthy to this action on the cross, worthy to the gospel. We pray that we would not make excuses, that we would live new, that we would live refreshed, that we would live in such a way that we would reflect Jesus in our actions, in our thoughts, in our speech. And Father, we pray that as we head next week to Mark 16, our final message in this gospel series, that we would rejoice that yes, in the death of Christ we might live, but in the resurrection of Christ we might have our eternity secure for he defeats sin and death. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work in our church, in our community and around the world and that souls would come to know you and your kingdom would expand. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.